Hello and welcome to episode four of the COVID-19 Inquiry Spotlight Sessions. I'm Alex Frist and I'm delighted to be joined again by my colleagues Hannah Frost and Hannah Howard from the Business Crime and Compliance team here at Shoesmiths. I'm also very delighted to be joined again by Anne Stud QC from 5 Essex Court. Welcome, Anne. In the last episode, we spoke about what the COVID inquiry might look like, what it will achieve or what it hopes to achieve and what we know so far about those leading the inquiry. In this session, we consider how the inquiry may approach core participant status, how businesses might apply to be a core participant, and also the advantages in doing so. So let's start by talking about core participancy status and what it means. Hannah? Thanks, Alex. Um, So there's no strict definition for what a core participant is, but generally it's understood to refer to a participant who will play a key role during the inquiry process. A person or an organisation can be designated as a core participant by an inquiry chair, either on the initiative of the chair themselves or by way of an application from the person or organisation directly. In order to be designated as a core participant, the person or organisation needs to fulfil the following criteria. So firstly, the person played or may have played a direct and significant role in relation to the matters to which the inquiry relates. Secondly, where they have a significant interest in the subject matter or some aspect of the inquiry or where the person may be subject to explicit or significant criticism during the inquiry proceedings or in the report or any interim report. So those are the three criteria that the chair will consider when deciding whether to designate a core participant. And once they're designated as a core participant, the personal organisation will have certain rights as part of the inquiry process. Um, Hannah, could you take us through some of those rights? Yeah, of course. So a core participant usually attends for all of the proceedings or at least substantial parts of them, either in person or by recognised legal representatives. Though both core participants and witnesses are likely to attend the inquiry and give evidence, there are some significant differences between the two. Witnesses are not permitted to ask questions or play an active part in the inquiry, whereas core participants will participate in a variety of ways. They can usually make opening and closing statements at any hearing, ask questions of witnesses at public hearings, see any evidence held by the inquiry that relates to their interest in it, and also see any draft report relating to their interest in the inquiry before it's published. So Alex, what do we know about the numbers of core participants in inquiries? Well, absolutely. I mean, the number of core participants in any inquiry can vary greatly. You know, for instance, in the infected blood inquiry, there are over 1,600 core participants, um, just, just to sort of give you a figure. And in the Grenfell Tower inquiry, there are over 500, um, both individuals and organisations as well with that sort of status. How the COVID inquiry will approach the core participancy status, it remains to be seen. But, you know, let's be honest, there could technically be thousands of them. The pandemic has affected such a wide range of people and organisations too that will be very interesting to see how the inquiry manages applications for core participancy status. One potential way this could be managed, um, we think, is, is potentially to group core participants together using uh, sector bodies to represent multiple core participants through one channel. Example of this might be you know, grouping retailers in one category, care homes in another, for instance, and then perhaps universities and colleges um, with a separate entry. What do you think the advantages are of being a core participant? There are a number of advantages to being a core participant. Um, and as Hannah mentioned earlier, um, if a person is designated as a core participant, they are granted certain rights. For example, um, they can appoint a legal representative, they can obtain advance notice of evidence before publication um, more widely, and they can request that questions are put to a witness giving oral evidence. And they also have a right to make opening and closing submissions. 
Um, and finally, they have a right to see any inquiry report before publication. And I think on a wider level, being a core participant also affords organisations and people the chance to advocate for them and their interests in their sector um, and influence the lessons learned from the inquiry and the eventual um, recommendations that come out of it. And while there are benefits to being a core participant, as we've discussed, there are, there are also disadvantages, such as the cost of instructing legal representatives and the higher profile and greater publicity and in turn public scrutiny that a core participant can expect from being part of a public inquiry. So if an organisation wanted to apply for core participant status, um, how would they go about that, Hannah? Well, as I'm sure you would expect, there is a formal process for applying to have core participant status. Applications are usually submitted in writing by email or by post, um, and an inquiry will usually impose a deadline for such applications, which will normally be posted on the website and determined at preliminary hearings. However, an application can be made at any time. In some cases, core participant status will be granted immediately prior to or even during an inquiry to ensure that an individual can be appropriately represented and can respond to any such criticism during an inquiry. Representatives seeking to obtain core participant status should set out in detail the grounds upon which the proposed core participant can be seen to have an important interest in the inquiry or any investigation within it. In particular, whether an individual or organisation was involved in an important way in the events that the investigation or inquiry is considering. Due to the number of parties potentially involved in the COVID-19 inquiry, there are potentially an enormous number of applications that could be made. So we've spoken in this episode about core participants in public inquiries. We've spoken about what core participants are, the advantages of being a core participant and how to apply for core participant status. I'm delighted to introduce Anstad QC from Five Essex Court, who joins us today to provide some further insight into core participants and the COVID-19 inquiry. Anne, it'd be great to hear from you about what type of organisations you think might be core participants in the COVID-19 inquiry. I think one of the real difficulties that the chair is going to have in this inquiry is limiting the number of core participants. So I think it's unlikely that she will allow a large number of small individual firms or organisations to be represented with core participant status. There's a number of reasons for that. One, because it makes it completely unmanageable. But two, because there is a cost to the inquiry of every core participant by reason of the disclosure that has to be provided. So it's likely it will be subject to some restriction. I think the most likely way that she will manage it is to permit core participant status to trade organisations, professional organisations, that sort of thing, where everybody involved in that sector can feed in to their professional organisation and it can be presented by them uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other. So if you have a professional organisation or a trade association, now is the time to contact them, find out what their take is on it and make sure that if you think it's important that your business is represented, that they know that and that they are beginning to take steps to ensure that they make application for core participant status at the appropriate time. Oh, that's excellent. It's definitely good for um our listeners to bear in mind definitely if they'd like to be heard in, as part of the inquiry and just building on that do you think there's anything else that potential core participants should be thinking about at this stage to prepare for potential involvement in the inquiry yes i do the most important thing when you're going to get involved in anything like this is disclosure and the sooner you can assimilate the material that you think is relevant to the inquiry the better mm -hmm. because things get lost 
they get deleted automatically under the deletion processes. And then when you try and find it from archiving, it becomes a complete nightmare. So the thing to do is right now to work out what material you think might be relevant to an inquiry, whether you're a core participant or not, and make sure that you have it filed organized all in one place ready for you to look through it again once you know what the terms of reference are and whether or not you're going to take any substantial part excellent that's really helpful thank you so even though applications for core participant status are not open yet and we don't have the uh, terms of reference from the inquiry at the time of recording we do you know we do expect that organizations will need to act quickly when the applications are eventually opened and the terms are referenced are published for the inquiry so if you'd like your organization to have a voice in the inquiry it will be very sensible of you to start thinking about the involvement now even preserving and sort of collecting the evidence early on will save a great deal of time and cost also once the inquiry is underway. And we will be of an enormous help to you in understanding whether you'd like to participate or not. Thanks very much for joining us on this Spotlight session. In the next episode, we will be discussing the impact the pandemic has had on the social and healthcare sector. And we really hope you can join us. Thank you. 